calling all operatives. From now to March 30th, MGM National Harbor invokes your skills to play Covert Cash, a spy-themed kiosk game series where classified missions, hidden rewards, and daily thrills await. Sign up for MGM Rewards to play and unlock up to $25,000 in hidden free play daily and entries into our grand escape car drawing on March 30th. Visit MGMNationalHarbor.com slash Covert Cash to begin your mission. Must be 21. Please play responsibly. For help, visit MDGamblingHelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER. You and Betty and the Nancys and Bills and Joes and Janes will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. Hey, welcome to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Visgontis. This is a podcast that explores the space where science and society collide. We want to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it matters. If you're like me and you have little kids, maybe it's clear to you that a vacation and a trip are no longer the same thing. But even if you don't have kids, if you're out on an adventure, it's good to mitigate your risk and make sure that you're well prepared. To help you prepare, I wondered, what can we learn from history? And is there anything that science can tell us that can help us survive disasters if they come into our path? So I was delighted to hear about Cody Cassidy's new book, How to Survive History, How to Outrun a Tyrannosaurus, Escape Pompeii, Get Off the Titanic, and Survive the Rest of History's Deadliest Catastrophes. This feels really useful in the current day and age. And so without further ado, let's find out what we should be doing if we are faced with one of these historical catastrophes. Cody Cassidy, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thank you so much for having me. So we pride ourselves on this show as providing our listeners with pretty useful information. We hope that the scientists and thought leaders we talk to can help us make decisions in our lives. But your book seems particularly useful in an era when it seems like disasters are around the corner. And there are some specific chapters in your book that I am personally very, very interested in. Uh, so I'm going to like you know, I, I'm going to be selfish and want to delve into some of those. But before we get to that, how did you come up with this concept of learning about these different times and situations in history by thinking about how you would survive if you were there? Yeah, so the, the idea began when I read an uh, interesting study um, by some paleontologists about uh, the, the Dinosaurus Rex, actually, and his running speed, which I had always assumed that they were uh, incredibly fast, incredibly powerful. And then uh, their top speed, it turns out, though, was only about 12 or 13 miles an hour. And then so I, I went outside and I, I timed myself and I and I realized I would stand a, a decent chance. And so I, I uh, thought that was sort of counterintuitive and interesting and provided the sort of ground level sort of advice that you and, and sort of practical history that you don't often get in, in historical books. So I thought I sort of could expand that into including other disasters. And it sort of it also helps un us understand or use maybe a technique that theater and film uh, has often used in, in storytelling, which is to sort of get into the specifics of a couple of moments in time. You talk about how, you know, if you focus in on a few hours of what it's like to live in this place and time, you can learn or you can get a sense of place and, and history much more deeply than if you're trying to cover, you know, years or decades or, you know, even days. So can you 
tell us about this experience that you might have had as you were writing this book in terms of understanding more deeply what it would have been like and, and sort of the, the kind of historical facts of the place by taking this approach of zooming in uh, rather than trying to understand a sort of broader time period. Yeah, I think, well, the, the first fact that, that hits you, and maybe this isn't so surprising when you're focusing on disasters, was um, simply how uh, difficult and devastating life uh, during certain time periods and certain areas and certain events would have been. Sometimes I think reading a history book, uh, as they say, you know, sort of um, death becomes statistics and uh, sort of we, we read about the Black Death, for example. Um, and there are there's evidence that 40% of the city um, of London, which was 100,000 people at the time, may have died in just 18 months. And um, if you read about that in, in history books, it's certainly a stunning figure, but I think getting down into the sort of nitty gritty and, and trying to imagine as I did what uh, life would have been like and how to survive in the city that was undergoing that much devastation sort of aids in hitting home how difficult and deadly and awful uh, some of these ancient eras and events and even days would have been. So I'm about to embark on a cruise to um, Italy and Greece with my extended family. So um, Pompeii and uh, the uh, sinking of the Titanic are, you know, ones that I want to really get into for sure, because those might be, you know, particularly relevant to me. And I live in San Francisco, so the 1906 earthquake is another one I want to talk about. But you brought it up, uh, and I was going to start with the Black Death, since I think we've all kind of gone through something pretty phenomenal over the last few years related to a kind of plague. So tell us a story of how we, what we need to know in order to survive the Black Death. So the Black Death uh, occurred in, I'm focusing on England and this and specifically London. It, they actually know that the exact day it arrived it was on June 25th, 1348, at least so they say, um, according to this legend, a sailor, a sickened sailor arrived from a Mediterranean port. And the, the plague had been moving across Europe for more than a year at this time. So uh, people in England knew it was coming, um, but there was very little they could do about it seems like the only thing they really did was the sort of grim task of digging mass graves because there was no idea how to how it was transmitted um, no idea how to avoid it of course we know now so if, if you were back then we know it was transmitted by flea bite primarily by flea bite and these fleas were traveling on rats usually so if you were in London, I thought initially that the smart thing would be to run to a rural city, somewhere a rural area where there are less people like you would expect in most pandemics. But that would actually be a mistake because unlike in most pandemics, this isn't determined by human density. It's more rat to human ratio. So in these farm villages that had lots of rats and few people, the plague would wipe out the rats. And then there would be a lot of hungry fleas searching for meals. So if there were fewer humans, there would be more likely that you'd be bitten. So as great as the death toll was in London, it was actually worse in many of the rural farming villages. So the best choice of action is to stay in the city and just try to avoid rat-infested areas of the city, uh, which were generally the areas where the dirtier parts of town, where there's sort of more refuse on the ground. And um, There's other strategies I learned to avoiding flea bites, sort of long pants, tucking your socks, tuck in the pant legs, long sleeves, bathe frequently because there's a chance if you see a, a flea, you can get it off before it transmits the, the, the bacteria. 
and don't get a cat because uh, or a rat trap because it turns out the only thing more dangerous than a, than a live rat near you is a dead one because that forces its flea to, to seek a new host. Yeah, that's do you do when you as you're kind of like thinking about this, did you were you influenced by the the methods that the people in the time were using? And was it clear to you that like, if they had a misconception about how the plague was plague was spreading that they made some poor decisions? Yeah, well, they, they did make poor decisions, especially the, the first wave when there was really no idea what was working. And so they would, they thought it was spore opening activities, they called it would transmit the plague. So they would um, exercise they thought was bad, but even more dangerously, um, they were worried about bathing. They thought bathing opened spores and allowed the disease to, to get inside, which is exactly the, the opposite of what you should be doing, of course. And, and, and in fact, you shouldn't see a doctor at all. Their techniques were simply uh, painful, like bleeding, they thought would help cure it. Of course, that it's ineffective and, and just painful. So in later waves, they started to learn, particularly the wealthy would retreat to their sort of, if they had these sort of rat-free you know, manners out in the countryside, that they would uh, pursue that, and that was that was effective. But especially for the Black Death, when the, the first wave, it, there was really nothing anybody knew what to do. All right, so keep your pants tucked into your socks. Try to avoid killing any rats and places where they might congregate. Um, and okay, that all sounds totally reasonable. <laughs> um, all right, so let's get more specific to things that I might be facing. Uh, hopefully not, but maybe. Uh, let's talk about Pompeii. So, how would you have survived Pompeii? So the first surprising thing was that uh, anybody survived Pompeii to me. I, this is a, a massive volcano. It was sort of uh, Vesuvius is only six miles away from Pompeii when it started erupting. We actually know the day on August 24th in, in 79 AD, probably about 10 in the morning, actually. And it was erupting one and a half million tons of molten rock per second, which you would think is an unsurvivable. But surprisingly, it really uh, the evidence suggests at least half of the people in Pompeii did, did survive by running away. And those that didn't took shelter. Initially, the the volcano was, um, as in, in a lot of volcanoes, it's sort of uh, cracking the top of the volcano uh, releases the gases. Uh, this is sort of a similar effect as you know, popping a bottle of champagne, all the carbon dioxide that's absorbed into the, into the magma releases out. And this sort of uh, creates a sort of jet engine-like effect. It shoots the cloud high into the stratosphere. And this is actually safer. It, it, the stratosphere is a safe place for the, uh, this cloud. It's um, hot enough to melt lead. And so initially, the, the only effect on Pompeii was sort of falling ash, a bit like snow. And so some people took cover from it, and, and some people ran. And, and taking cover would be, would be a mistake uh, because as the, as, the vo- as the volcano progressed and released most of its gases, the, the cloud became denser. And so uh, early that afternoon... Instead of rising, it, the, the cloud rising to the stratosphere, it only rose a few hundred feet and then collapsed and sort of rolled down the, the hill and, and the wind was blowing toward Pompeii that morning. So it rolled through Pompeii. It's very fast. It's called a pyroclastic surge. It's moved at about 80 miles an hour and it's about 1800 degrees. And it's also so dense, you, you would suffocate. So when that rolled through, anybody who took shelter didn't make it. So but perhaps the most surprising thing is because of the wind direction that morning, when I, when I spoke to the, the archaeologists, they suggested you should actually run toward the volcano and then past it because you have about a five-hour window because, before the, the real deadly phases of the, of the um, eruption occurred. And 
if you can just make it past it because the wind was blowing toward Pompeii, you, you actually have a, sh you, you would only need to run a shorter distance. So if you can make it to Naples, which is only about 13 miles away and you have about five hours to do it, that's, you know, um, a fast walk, jog pace, uh, and then you would, you would escape. So 10 a.m., walk, run towards the, <laughs> the volcano and try to make it to Naples so you can sit and have a uh, nice pizza while Pompeii gets destroyed. Okay. Yeah, that, that doesn't apply to all volcanic eruptions. I should, <laughs> right. I should uh, add it. But it's or just all days. <laughs> you know, this particular day, right? I mean, there could be days where the wind shifts. or Exactly. You know, okay. Okay. I like it. Um, all right. Well, what about the Titanic? I'm about to get onto a big cruise ship. <laughs> That's definitely, you know, I'll be going to figuring out where my muster station is and where the uh, where the where the life jackets are. But um, and we do know that people there were people that survived. Uh, but why don't you tell us some of the specifics of of what you think would have been the best strategy? So uh, <laughs> the Titanic was um, unlike a, a modern cruise ship. Uh, famously, they had only lifeboats for about a third of their passengers. So if you're in the third class deck, it is possible to survive. And some people did survive even from down there, but they didn't tell anybody how to get to the life rafts uh, in the Titanic. There were no escape drills. So that's the first thing that I advised anybody getting on a ship is to know how to get to the, to the life rafts. And so they also kept the door locked for uh, a little while as the, as the wreck went on. However, there were some escape ladders on the front, which I sort of in the book, I include. I, we found some pictures, and I, there's some. There's a, a way to get to the to the top from with avoiding the doors. But really, the the most important thing I thought was is when the when the boat hits the ice, is you should change into your uh, finest clothing. I, I thought because these lifeboats were actually on the first class deck, and so for a little while there, it was a sort of invitation only affair. And if you look the part, I think you might be uh, more likely to get a, a seat on the boat disguise yourself as aristocracy yeah and then there's uh there's some sort of it depends if you're a, a man or a woman or a child because on the titanic they um they preferentially loaded women and children uh but we can see from the sort of passenger manifests of the manifests of these lifeboats that the port side interestingly was a little bit more strict about this policy in fact one of the guards there threatened to to shoot uh any any man that boarded the, the boat so i would suggest if you're a woman or child you should go to that side of the boat. And if you're a man to go to the other where it's a little bit more, or is a little lenient, more lenient. But then if, if you don't get a seat, which is uh, likely uh, because they didn't, not only didn't have enough seats for everybody, they didn't even load these boats to capacity. They were worried about the, they were worried about the, the system for loading them that it would, it would break if they were, if uh, they were full of people. It is possible, I think, to, to swim to the lifeboats. They were about 500 yards away, and a few people who hit the water did survive. Um, and you, so you, this water is about 27 degrees, so you'd have about 15 minutes before your arms and legs become too numb to swim. So if you can swim 500 yards in 15 minutes, I would suggest you go for it. And what do you do with your jewels? Do you drop them to the bottom of the ocean? <laughs> <laughs> oh, you wait. You wait, uh, you wait 70 years, and when there's a big expedition there, you secretly drop them off while they're looking for it, I think. All right, and now sort of closer to home, uh, what about the 1906 earthquake? Or, you know, earthquakes in general, because hopefully this is uh, information that would be useful. We were taught, you know, go 
hide under a desk, which now we know, or at least I, now I've been taught that that's not the thing to do. Um, rather stand in a doorway. Uh, like what, 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 are, what are the right answers here? Well, the first right answer is, is yeah, definitely get inside. Um, surprisingly, even in 1906, when a lot of the buildings in San Francisco were made of brick and um, prone to collapse, it's still safer to get to get inside because what happens when these buildings collapsed was the sort of every chimney and rock walls would sort of fall into the streets. So um, as dangerous as it is to be in one of these a building that collapses, it's actually even more dangerous to be next to it. So it would be best to get inside a building preferentially one with a lot of walls. Um, the buildings that fared the worst were the sort of warehouses and buildings without a lot of interior structure. When San Francisco was, when these buildings were built, they had very little concept of, of earthquakes or, or their danger. And they'd sort of just been, just been discovered and compounding the problem. A lot of San Francisco is, I'm sure, you know, built on um, sort of silt and even sort of old pioneer trash, uh, basically trash pits is, the Mission uh, District used to be a, a muddy river, and it's been filled in, and so that soil does particularly poorly. It sort of liquefies when the when the waves of energy pass through of these earthquakes, and so that was a, a particularly dangerous area to be. Okay. Um, so I, I'm going on this cruise with my family, including my kids, who sometimes act like pirates. Uh, so I think it's helpful to know how you would survive a voyage with Blackbeard. <laughs> Because maybe there's some tips in that chapter that would be useful to me moving moving along now. Yeah, uh, pirates have a bad reputation, but surprisingly, surviving with them would actually been I found uh, better than than being a merchant sailor at the time. Um, it was a surprisingly democratic venture. These pirate ships they had a lot of rules. There was uh, sort of no fighting. There was a lot of bedtime by eight o'clock, even they, they use published rules. Yeah. It's sort of a, not really conforms with the Hollywood um, image of the, a bunch of swashbucklers. Whereas on these, uh, on these merchant vessels, which a lot of these pirates had escaped from, there was the discipline was horrible. There was, the work was grueling. These merchant vessels, they had about staffed by about 10 uh, sailors and these pirate ships, there had something like 200 often they were sort of and so many many hands like make light work so the the work was grueling on these merchant ships but but far easier on these well-staffed pirate ships and and even the captains didn't have the uh authoritarian power on pirate ships that they did on merchant vessels um only during combat did these could these pirates make unilateral decisions the captains that otherwise everybody voted on where to go even what ships to attack and so there was actually uh, a little bit more honor amongst uh, amongst these thieves, and 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 quite a bunch, uh, a lot of wealth too. They on some of these ships, they've uh, on one famous attack in, in the Indian Ocean, a pirate made away with 160 million dollars of in today's money uh, worth of gold and, and jewels. Um, some pirate ships found off the east coast went down with like four tons of of gold and silver. So on one successful. Uh, robbery, these pirates could make more than they would make in a, in a career as a merchant sailor. So um, I, I would actually suggest uh, <laughs> being a pirate and, and, uh, and, and they have a, they have a <laughs> which I admit sounds uh, bad, but they actually have a, some ships were worse than others, but in many of them, the, the um, they often let their, uh, their capturees go uh, because it was sort of in their interest. They sort of wanted to, uh, 
cultivate a, a, an aura of um, a fearsome sort of bloodthirstiness. But uh, if you surrendered, they would let you go. That way they didn't have to fight for the, these vessels. They didn't want to shoot their cannons or because that risked sinking their treasure. So Blackbeard, for example, there's no, it doesn't seem likely he actually killed anybody until his sort of final uh, famous battle off of North Carolina. So I think, I, <laughs> I think if you were going to survive, it would actually be better to go with the pirates and maybe these, these merchant vessels actually. So why do you think the, the pirates were, I mean, it seems like, do you think it's because they, like, why, why would they be sort of better behaved, <laughs> um, more democratic? You know, I get, I get like, yeah, I get why there might be like a difference between hierarchy of, and maybe there's less of that, but yeah, why else? Yeah, no, I, it's, it's really interesting. And, and I actually, I spoke with an uh, economist who, who wrote a really interesting paper on this, talking about the differences between pirates, say, and, and sort of like the, the mafia and the competition between pirates was low because uh, it's very difficult to establish a pirate ship. Um, it was costs a lot of money. It, it's sort of like the equivalent of, um, I likened it to starting up an airline now where you need a lot of investment, a lot of money. But once you have a, a, an established pirate ship, the competition is low because it's difficult to uh, bring up competitors. Whereas, uh, And that, that uh, breeds a sort of um, less need to violently keep down your competition. Whereas the sort of protection rackets that the mafia runs sort of any, any, anybody with a gun can start up their own business. And therefore the only way to, and they'll sort of undercut each other's prices for protecting uh, establishments. And so the only way for a mafia like business to maintain it's to maintain high profit is to establish a monopoly violently, of course, by violently keeping down their competition. So he proposed, and I, and I found it compelling, was that because it's so difficult and so expensive to establish a pirate ship, it actually, once once they were established, there was less need to violently uh, keep down your competition, your fellow pirate. Wow. It's, yeah, it's super interesting. And I think that's a great example of how delving deep into, you know, I think like that's something that you probably wouldn't have gotten from the history books, or at least, you know, like if you're just reading them as, as, as they're, but, but when you think about like on the day to day, yeah, that's that sort of gives you a a better better sense and and a more accurate perception, you know, of of, of how things actually were. We, uh, you know, there's there's some still question of what the world is going to be like a uh, hundred years from now and thousands of years from now. But if we do make it to the next ice age, um, what would be your advice? Well, the first most interesting thing about the Ice Age is that we still live in the Ice Age, uh, if you talk to a planetary uh, scientist, because technically an Ice Age is any time ice covers the Northern Hemisphere which uh, year-round, which it still does. Although it's, it's um, judging by the amount of carbon in the atmosphere, it, it probably won't for much longer. But it, um, and this sort of began almost uh, 3 million years ago, actually, the, the, this current Ice Age when, and uh this occurred. Uh, I was really fascinated about this. It, I, it, there was a recent study by the across the bay from me, these Berkeley uh, planetary scientists who um, found that ice ages uh, are caused by a reduction of carbon in the atmosphere, which is sort of like carbon dioxide, which is sort of like our insulating blanket. And this occurs when there's like uh, tectonic collisions in the tropics. So 3 million years ago, Indonesia collided with Northern Australia, the plates, which are, they're still colliding. And this sort of uplifts a lot of, um, uh, mafic rock uh, and this erodes and the, these minerals erode into the 
ocean, this calcium and magnesium, which combines with the carbon dioxide that's in our oceans and locks and locks it away as, as limestone. So um, when they found that uh, the ice ages throughout history have always followed these massive collisions, which basically sequester lots of carbon dioxide, removes the sort of Earth's insulating blanket, and then the planet cools. And sort of the opposite, of course, is volcanoes. Large volcanic activity releases the carbon dioxide back into the atmosphere and sort of we're on this cycle. So really, when we talk about the ice age uh, 25,000 years ago, it's actually called the last glacial maximum, which is just occurs when the Earth, uh, because the Earth is on these uh, 40,000 year wobbles, it sort of wobbles as it as it spins a bit like a top as we tilt slightly away from the from the sun it's not as if we are receiving much less solar energy but the the slight tilt away sort of changes how the ocean currents um, release carbon into the air so this sort of uh, less upwelling and more carbon is is in the oceans and is in the air and it, and uh and you have uh, global cooling so back in the ice age that there was about 65 percent uh, of the carbon dioxide in the air than there was, uh, than there is pre-industrial, uh, pre-industrial humans. So, uh, and if you're living in the shadow of these, uh, uh, mile high glaciers at, at times, uh, I, I sort of in the book discuss how you would, uh, I, I was, became particularly fascinated with the, this culture, uh, that hunted specifically the gravitons culture that hunted mammoth almost to exclusion. So I, I sort of talk about that in the book. Yeah, you point out that you should not send your spear to the butt of the mammoth, but rather, I'm assuming, to in between its eyes. Yeah, unfortunately, um, I, the mammoth rears like elephants are virtually impenetrable. So um, if, it would be nice to not have to face the tusks, but that is sadly not an option. Uh, you have to, you have to, and, and I should add, you can't throw your spear. Um, that would that would be sort of like a mammoth tickler. It's um, what they used were atlatls, uh, spear throwers. And the, it's a pretty simple device. Um, it's just a stick that you rest the, the spear on that gives you a little bit more leverage. Um, you actually see in a lot of dog parks today, you see a similar device that um, aids in throwing the tennis ball. So it, it's, it's quite quite similar to that idea. You just rest the, the spear on that stick and, and launch it and it adds um, a lot of velocity to throw. So the their technique is they think these uh, cultures would trap a single mammoth in a sort of cul-de-sac of, of rock and then launch their atlatl spears at it. And uh, this, and it, they, for a long time, paleontologists were sort of even, uh, even though they found so many bones in uh, these mammoth, these camps, they, some, some of them are almost exclusively filled with mammoth bone. They thought uh, it would have been too dangerous to hunt these creatures. They must have scavenged them. Um, but recently they've, they've started founding these, uh, arrowheads buried into in mammoth bone and, uh, sort of the smoking gun that clearly proving that these, these people somehow hunted one of the most dangerous creatures with stick and stone. Wow. And now we have people trying to bring them back. <laughs> um, so I want to remind our listeners that Cody Cassidy's book, How to Survive History, How to Un- Outrun a Tyrannosaurus, Escape Pompeii, Get Off the Titanic, and Survive the Rest of History's Deadliest Catastrophes, is available at booksellers everywhere. Um, and also, it says that you are the author of Who Ate the First Oyster? Uh, so I, I have a, 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 you know, a final question, but first I need to know, who ate the first oyster? <laughs> yeah, so there surprisingly is, is an answer to this question. Um, they found the oldest eaten oyster shells in South Africa, uh, in a cave 
about 100, they're about 164,000 years old. So this is near the beginning of when, uh, of when humans became sort of uh, what they call cog- cognitively modern. And the, I spoke with the archaeologist who found them and I asked him who, who he thought ate them. And he had, he had an interesting theory, which was that at this time, cultures didn't actually live on the, on the, like, on the coast because they had no means of uh, getting food from the water. It sort of a, would have been a food desert at the time. And so he thought they must have traveled uh, to the coast. And this brings up an interesting problem with oysters because oysters are only available above the water, uh, sort of 10% of the time at the very lowest tides. So he, he wondered if uh, these first oyster eaters weren't the first people to sort of recognize, or some of the first people to recognize that the moon and the, and the tides are, are related. And they knew when there was a fuller new moon that it was time to travel to the, to the ocean and, and eat their oyster. But they probably cooked it, I would say. I, I prefer my oysters raw, but uh, it's safer to eat cooked oysters. So um, <laughs> it's safer to eat cooked food in general. So if you were the first one to eat an oyster, I, I, we assume you would have cooked it. Well, so that brings me to my last question, which is like, you know, in writing this book, what have you learned that has affected kind of your day to day? Is there anything that you've learned from history that now you're like, well, now I, you know, walk around with a spear that I can toss with my with my special dog tossing toy? <laughs> like, what is it? Uh, I think um, I think that the best way I, you know, what I learned really is that these disasters sort of repeat themselves. Um, we, we sort of look through ancient, I look through ancient history and and so many of these disasters, these sort of pandemics and earthquakes and fires and and shipwrecks, sort of they they they're similar throughout history. There's they move in the same way. Even the tornado that I discussed, they move in the strike in the same place, move in the same way, do similar kinds of damage. So it was interesting to write these uh, survival guides for such ancient events with such different people. And then sort of as I, you can't help but as you're writing them and researching them, imagining them happening today and realizing that many of them would proceed in, in much the same way as they did thousands of years ago. So um, it hasn't really turned me into a survivalist, I don't think, but it's sort of added an interesting perspective on these ancient events and sort of uh, you can imagine how they would, after reading and researching them, you can, you can clearly see how they would probably proceed in the future. Well, Cody Cassidy, thank you for being on Inquiring Minds and helping us prepare for what I hope are safe but adventurous travels in our summertime. Thank you so much for having me. So that's it for another episode. Thanks for listening. If you want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe. And if you'd like to get an ad-free version of the show, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. I want to especially thank David Noel, Herring Chang, Sean Johnson, Jordan Miller, Kyle Raihala, Michael Galgool, Eric Clark, Yushi Lin, Clark Lindgren, Joelle, Stefan Meyer Awald, Dale Lemaster, and Charles Blyle. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac, and I'm your host, Indre Viscontis. See you next time. Every day, our world gets a little more connected, but a little further apart. But then, there are moments that remind us to be more human. Thank you for calling Amica Insurance. Hey, uh, I was just in an accident. Don't worry, we'll get you taken care of. At Amica, we understand that looking out for each other isn't new or groundbreaking. 
It's human. Amica. Empathy is our best policy.